Hello and welcome back to Oddments. I'm your host Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is the first episode of our new format, which compiles the daily curio into one episode of Oddments. If you'd rather hear a short podcast every day, you might want to subscribe to the Daily Curio instead. However, for those of you who would like a longer podcast once a week, Oddments is for you. Each of the new Oddments features a number of stories that are connected in some way, starting with this episode. See if you can detect the commonality before it's revealed at the end of the podcast. So let's dive in with the mystery of the Somerton Man. An alarming number of people disappear every year, and a number of them leave very few clues as to their current whereabouts. But in 1948, a man was found on a beach in Victoria, Australia. In this case, his whereabouts were certainly known, but who he was remains a mystery nearly 70 years later. He did leave a lot of clues, though. His body was found on December 1, 1948, leaning up against the seawall on a public beach. Witnesses said they had seen the man earlier that evening, raising his arm, but apparently no one tried to talk to him. When he was taken to the morgue, there seemed little doubt that he had been poisoned by some undetected substance. As to how the poison entered his system, the medical examiner could not say. His stomach contents indicated that he had eaten a meat pie the evening before, but that didn't seem to be the source of the poison. In the meantime, investigators focused on other odd facts. He appeared to be English, but was wearing American clothes. The clothes were well made, and his shoes were shined. He had unusually muscular legs that suggested he may have been a ballet dancer. His teeth and fingerprints matched no records in Australia. At the time of his death, he had a cigarette behind his ear, and another was found on his collar, half-smoked. Unfortunately, neither was tested for poison. The cigarettes themselves were odd. They were an expensive brand, but the others in his pocket were stored inside the pack of a much cheaper brand. Also on his person was an unused train ticket. He was identified as several different people, only to have those people stroll into the police station proving they were still alive. Over 250 identifications were offered, but none were conclusive. And then things got strange. Months after his death, investigators found a hidden watch pocket in his pants. Inside was a small scrap of paper with the words Tamam Shud printed on it. Tamam Shud means it's over in Persian, and they are the last words of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, a Persian book of poetry. By an amazing stroke of luck, the book from which it had been removed was located by someone who found it tossed into their unlocked car. The torn bit matched the missing part of the last page of the book. One solved mystery leads to another unsolved mystery, as secret codes were found in the back of the book. Though they seem similar to the quatrains of the Rubiat, no one has yet deciphered them. There was also a phone number, the unlisted number of a woman who had given a copy of the book as a gift to a former lover. Bizarrely, that man was able to produce his copy, and the woman claimed to have no knowledge of who the dead man was. There are even more odd facts to this case, and I encourage you to look them up for yourself. But in the interest of time, we'll get to the important part. It seems there's a good explanation for some of the story. The woman, who was known by the pseudonym Jetson, has been identified. 
Her son Robin had a couple of unusual genetic traits. He was missing teeth from birth and had an unusual ear shape. The chances of someone having both of these conditions was less than 1%, and guess who else had them? That's right, the Somerton Man. It seems quite probable that Jetson was in the habit of giving out copies of the Rubiat to lovers, and that the Somerton man was one of these, and the father of her son. Her reticence to reveal this information is understandable, and it's quite possible that our mystery man committed suicide after being rejected by her one final time. Finally, we may have reached Tamam Shub. <laughs> Evolution can lead to some strange places. For example, how many wings do birds have? The answer is obviously two, even if there are birds that don't have two wings. Which birds? The penguin, for example, which has what can best be described as flippers rather than wings. And then there's the unfortunate moa, a giant among birds hunted to extinction by the year 1450. The moa is the only known bird without any trace of wings, vestigial or otherwise. But there is another configuration that must be considered. Why aren't there any birds with more than two wings? It seems there might have been. But learn the full story before you head to your nearest buffalo wings establishment with the news. Some modern birds, such as chickens, have feathers on their legs, but these are for warmth rather than flight. What if these feathers were long enough to be of some use in the air? Recent discoveries in China point to avians having exactly that feature. There is much debate in the paleontology community over the discoveries, but the journal Science reported in 2013 that there were primitive birds with hind wings, and that it's likely they were used to aid flight. While these extra planes may have helped in the air, they were less likely to be helpful on land. A bird's ability to walk is also important, and gradually hind wings became strong legs. But those hind feathers are still visible. Scientists think they simply became the large scales found on many bird feet. Think about that the next time you're at dim sum. Farmers have a reputation for being simple folk, but in reality, farming has a long tradition of innovation and efficiency that few other professions can match. Take, for example, the problem of milking cows. We now have complex machinery that does the job for us, but for centuries someone had to sit by the cow and manipulate udders to squirt milk into a pail. All that time sitting in one place and thinking about how tedious it was resulted in some changes to the stool being sat upon. A milking stool now has only three legs. Why? Because the cow has the udder! No, there's a very good reason. If you have a four-legged stool, any three legs can form a stable base, leaving the corner over the fourth leg unstable. In short, four-legged stools can wobble. But physics dictates that a three-legged stool is always balanced, as each leg must touch the ground in order for the stool to stay upright. It might seem like a small thing, but having a stable seat is important when you're moving it around and sitting on it for hours every day. Dairy farmers also spend a lot of time feeding cows, and walking up and down a long barn with hay or other feed is backbreaking work. And again, farmers thought about ways to improve the situation. And thus, the round barn was born. Though you don't see them very often, round barns have a unique feature. 
hay and other feed can be dropped from the loft into the center, and all the cows can eat from that one place. This saves hours of toil, and the cows don't mind at all. The reason round barns aren't very common is another reality of farming, economics. Dairy farming needs to respond to fluctuating prices, and that means a changing herd size. If you're dependent on a round barn, reducing your herd isn't a problem, but what if you need to make it bigger? It's not possible to increase the size of a circle without completely rebuilding it. More traditional rectangular barns can have a section added much more easily, and thus they prevail into modern times. Round barns are attractive and efficient, but in the end, economics wins, even if it means more work for the farmer. For over a dozen millennia, people have held a particular symbol in high esteem. It's found in Greek and Roman architecture, on Buddhist temples, and in the weavings of the Navajo. Mexican fireworks are often in this shape, and it signifies a temple when it appears on Japanese maps. Some American forces proudly wore the symbol on their uniforms in World War I, and it was the official insignia of the Finnish Air Force through the end of World War II. It goes by many names, such as the Hook Cross, the Crampany, the Philfo, Gamadian or Tetragamadian, and the Halloween-sounding Tetraskelion. Of course, when you see a swastika today, all you can think of is Nazis. And that's truly a shame, because until German nationalists adopted the symbol and the Nazi party made it infamous, it stood for good existence, or to the Native Americans, the four directions. Today, it is still used as a symbol of auspiciousness in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain culture. When Asian uses cross over to the West, a clash occurs. A Hindu man with a swastika tattooed on his wrist is not uncommon, and neither is a horrified reaction from an uninformed Westerner. During the holiday season of 2014, some Jewish folks were outraged that wrapping paper would include the symbol as part of an elaborate border, though very similar Greek keys can be found in the architecture of most Western cities of any size. Which brings us to the question, can a symbol be inherently evil? Clearly not, as this one is used for both good and bad intent. But make no mistake, if you put a swastika on your car in the States, it will be seen as support for racism, whether that's your intent or not. In the case of the wrapping paper, an apology was issued and the paper was removed from all stores nationwide. There is at least one group who wishes to change this image. If you browse on over to proswastika.org, you'll find a catalog of all the various uses of the symbol, and a plea to recognize it for the symbol of peace that it is for so many millions of people. Of course, that site is run by the Raelians, who believe that human life was created by extraterrestrials. They use the symbol themselves and have run into conflict with the state of Israel because of it. So, curious folk, when you see a swastika, look for context, and consider the same if you choose to use the symbol for yourself. And that's our episode for this week. Were you able to detect the theme? It has to do with how many stories there were this time. That's right, there were four, and that's the commonality between them. The Rubiad of Omar Khayyam was written in quatrains, sets of four lines. Birds with four wings is obvious, as is the talk about four-legged stools. And of course, the one thing that makes a swastika a swastika is that it has four lines. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk at you next week. 
Feel free to drop us a line at jeff at collegeofcuriosity.com if you have suggestions, complaints, or a really good recipe for something involving chocolate and coconut. 